0: Thanks, guys. Hey, everybody. So if you're newer, um, we're going through a series right now called The Gospel Through the Bible, in which we're trying to make it so that we actually can put all the different parts of the Bible together in one whole to see Jesus on every page of it all the way through, so that those of us who've been around the church for a while can see how the Bible was meant to be put together, and those who are unfamiliar with the Bible can get to know it for the first time. It's we're trying to kill, you know, two pterodactyls with one boulder there. And um, so this morning, though, I have to warn you that it's going to be kind of thick because I'm, I'm going to—in the passage for this morning, you think, oh, it's a little couple of few chapters in Genesis. Yeah, except the whole promise of the entire Bible and the whole dynamic of how all humans are saved are both covered in these— six chapters, and then worked out for the rest of the Bible. The whole rest of the Bible is working out the four or five chapters we're going to talk about this morning. So, um, it's going to be a little thicker. So, if you've got a, pew bi- a Bible or a Pew Bible, grab it, and you're ca- going to want to put your finger in the two passages I'm going to read this morning. They won't be on slides. Um, the first is Genesis, in Genesis 15, and that's going to be on page 20 if you've got a Pew Bible. And then the other one is going to be Romans 4— And that's going to be page 1749 if you've got a pew Bible. And I'll give you those numbers when I get there again. um, I I do want you to know too, if you're newer, that um, there's a study guide with this that goes along with a series that you can get, I think it's five bucks or something, in the office, which is a really good thing to study along with yourself through this stuff to help you put the Bible together and see Jesus on every page. And then we're using this in our small group studies. So it kind of all swings together and if you want to get one, you can still get one out there. Um, All right, so... Um, One of the things, especially in a city like ours in Madison, that gets thrown around a lot in relationship to faith and religion is the concept of self-righteousness, right? Um, You can be pretty much assured that some significant, non-trivial percentage of the population thinks that if you go to church, you are self-righteous. That's actually true for a good lot of people who go to church. But one of the things that um, I think is important to to try to think about is— what really is self righteousness and how does it find its way into human beings lives you know is self righteousness a phenomenon that 's native to faith or religious faith um, is it Is it something that 's native to the young or to the old right i 'm kind of in between, and instead of being corrupted by neither, I find myself being self righteous towards the young and the old um, or is it or is it a um, a malady of humanity I mean if you, if you read about how self-righteousness And people's thoughts about it comes up Over all the writing of the world What you'll find is human beings have been trying to cure this malady for millennia The entirely new Modern and sexy way To make sure nobody's ever self-righteous again now Is to just tell people not to be self-righteous It's a good thing we've had Several thousand years leading up to that one, right? Um, doesn't seem in my view To be working at all um, but I think part of this comes from the fact that I'm not sure we even know what self-righteousness is. I think, I think generally speaking, there's a very poor definition of self-righteousness, and that is if anybody's sure of what they believe or acts kind of arrogant, that they're self-righteous. And that's actually not what self-righteousness is. Self-righteousness is actually, it's two words that have a relationship to each other, and it's pretty direct what it means. It, it, it is righteousness from the self. That's what self-righteousness is. It is, that is, it is a belief in your own righteousness that proceeds from you. And for whatever reason, you believe you're righteous. That is, to define your righteousness from yourself through a criteria that you've come up with and that you've evaluated yourself in relationship to. And once you recognize that, there's lots of religious self-righteous people. There's lots of irreligious self-righteous people. There are just a lot of self-righteous people. And you can be self-righteous in at least two ways. You can be self-righteous in the presumptive way. You can just presume that you're awesome. And why would anybody feel like they could judge me? Right? Like, who are you to judge me? And if God's going to judge people, he's going to have to judge a lot of people before he judges me because I'm better than most and blah, 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 right? You can just presume you're righteous enough, presumptive self-righteousness, or you can be a performance-based self-righteousness, right? You can be like, I know the Bible, or I know my religious book, or I know what Kant said about the moral imperative, categorical imperative, and I, I know what good is, and I derived it logically or religiously, and I do it pretty well, and I'm better than most people, and you know, so you can be performance-based self-righteous, but in both cases— we're really evaluating ourselves from ourselves And the, one of the things that's important to recognize Is that um, I think both biblically and rationally or philosophically You're righteous if an objective person who knows what righteousness is And knows you tells you you're righteous And so for Christian faith that would be if God does Like, like real righteousness is if God tells you you're righteousness Or counts you righteous If God counts you as righteous, you're righteous And you're set right with him, yourself, and everything else. And if you're self-righteous, it's because you count yourself righteous. Now, you might be arrogant or humble about either of these. Personal humility or arrogance is irrelevant to whether or not something is self-righteous. Which is one of the reasons why telling people to just stop doing it doesn't work very well. Now, the dynamic of how—so then the answer, the, the question that would come from this is, okay, well then, it seems relatively important that humans would know how God counts us as righteous, right? If real righteousness is when God counts us as righteous, if God exists, we can't defend everything in every sermon, right? If there is a God and God counts us as righteous, how can we know that? And that's actually um, put forward in just one verse of the Bible— that almost all of us, if we read the Bible for the we're reading the Bible for the first time, would just read over and not pay any attention to. And it's in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And it's this verse. God made a promise to Abraham, and this is what it says right after that. Abraham believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, credited it to him as righteousness. That is belief. That is because Abraham believed God, God chose to credit Righteousness to him Because he trusted God Now in order to really understand How this works In the Old Testament And in the New Testament And then in all of reality um, I probably for most of us We're going to have to go back And recap the story of Abraham A little bit um, Which is in the Bible In chapters 12 to 22 of Genesis. And if you've never read that before, or if it's been a while, you you need to read it. It's not that hard. It's like nine pages in plain English. It's kind of interesting. And you really should do that. Um, And even if you're not a Christian and you dislike Christianity, you still owe it to yourself to be an educated enough person to have read that passage. So I'd encourage you to do that. Um, But I'll take you through the first half of the story because we're going to do Abraham for two weeks, okay? So the first is... Um, this guy Abraham comes on the scene. Now in chapter 11 is the story of Babel which is all these humans get together and they're like we're going to make a name for ourselves and we are going to be awesome and we're going to build this big city it's going to reach all the way to the sky and everybody's going to know who we are and blah blah blah. And in contrast to those guys making a name for themselves, which God disperses, there's this other guy who doesn't have much of a name for himself. In fact, when Abraham is introduced to people, one of the, one of the, fir- one of the things that you recognize when you read his family line is that he's not a very big deal, right? Um, chapter 11 ends with Abraham's father dying, leaving him with his orphan nephew and his infertile wife in a town that's named after his dead brother that they don't have any roots in. Jesus is, he's just this dude, and he's already—he's 75, and it, ba- it basically looks like he's pretty much over. And you're wondering why the author of Genesis would, would even introduce this character, right? But in that situation, God shows up in his life and says this in chapter 12. He says, the Lord said to Abram, because his name was Abram before it got changed to Abraham later on, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you I will make you into a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You know something about who Abraham was? That is that is a really interesting thing to say. Cause in those days nobody left their clan. Your clan was all the security you had. To leave your clan as a nomad and go to a whole other place when you have no children, no line, no clan of your own, is crazy. And for a man with no children to be raised up in a nation that would bless all peoples on the earth is insane. But Abraham did it. He got his household together and he went to a whole other place where he had never been. Now, when he got there, he um, in Canaan. They lived there for a while, but then there was this huge drought. And there's one place in the Middle East where there's always water. That is the Nile River. And so when the drought got bad enough, they went down to Egypt. Now, the one thing Abraham had going for himself, um, which wasn't all that helpful, was apparently his wife was just 50 times foxier than any woman should decently be. Okay? She's just apparently profoundly gorgeous and, like, stood out among a nation— right? And so he gets to Egypt, and they're about they're about to sort of cross the state line, and Abraham's like, you know, sweetie, when we get to Egypt, they are going to think you're fabulous, which of course I do, and um, they're going to kill me. Some dude is going to want to get me out of the way, probably the Pharaoh himself, and so when we go to Egypt, how about you just, we're not going to be there forever, how about you just say I'm your brother, because we're from the same clan, we are kind of related, and so, right? So, which is whole nother thing, Um, and so they get to um, they get to to Egypt, and they do that. She says they they save their brother and sister, and word gets back to Pharaoh about how hot this woman is, and Pharaoh's like, "Well, I'm always on the lookout for another one," and so she gets pulled into the harem and becomes one of Pharaoh's wives, and and then just curse comes into Pharaoh's whole household. Just everything is going wrong. Nobody can have a child. The livestock are dying. Everything's going wrong. And it comes to his attention that Sarah wasn't unmarried. Like, this is Abraham's wife. And so he goes to Abraham. He's like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, you, you did this? And Abraham's like, yeah, I see. Yes, I did. Yeah. And so he goes, well, here's your wife. And what do you do when you have some wife that's not yours and God is destroying your whole kingdom? You, like, you send them away with some stuff. Like, you bless them as much as possible. So Pharaoh gives Abram and Lot, his nephew, tons of stuff. And Abram and Lot come up out of Egypt into the promised land after the drought wealthy. Pretty sketch. Right? A little bit of lack of class. And they show up in Canaan, and they are enormously wealthy. In fact, they're so wealthy that by the time they get back to Israel, um, Lot's herds people and Abram's herds people are arguing with each other because there's not enough room or water for both of them. And so they're on the hill country, and they're looking down into the plain of Jericho, and it's this big kind of open grassy place and then there's the hill country of Judea which is like kind of rocky there's like stuff growing out of the rocks it's not real appealing and there's a lot of up and down and um, so unless you want great quads it's not the best place to live and so uh, Abraham turns a Lot and he does something classy and that's the thing with Abraham he's always back and forth he's like Mr. Warlord and then he's like no class and so he turns a Lot and he says Lot listen just take whatever you want you go one way. I'll go the other. We'll be on good terms. And Lot goes, well, if it's all the same to you, I will take the well-watered grassland by that city called Sodom and live there and you can live in the hill country. And Abram goes, awesome. And right after that, God shows up to Abram. So Abram's already up on the hill and he can see everything and he's, he's at the highest part of this whole area of land and God says, he says, listen, Abram, um, lift your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go and walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I, am, for I am giving it to you. So think about that. That's the silver lining, right? He gets the land that you could never stay in one place with all your flocks and herds because there's not nearly enough food or water. So you have to totally wander all the time. And God's like, that's exactly what I want because I want you to see the whole land I'm giving you. And so. So Abraham doesn't stay in one place. He's this nomadic sheik that just, he, he just keeps moving between city-states and around and around to finding enough food to graze and enough water, right? Now, that, that brings us to Kedalomer, the southern Iranian behind-kicking warlord king. Now, I have to say behind, there's children in the service, people, okay? But there, about this time, there was a king in southern modern-day Iran, and he, for 12 years— had been getting money from all the city-state kings in basically Syria and Israel, that whole area. For about 12 years, he'd, he'd beat them all in a shape once, and every year they paid money to him and his buddies. And one day, those, these, these other people in, in Syria and Israel were like, you know what, he can't take us. Let's all, you know, let's just, we'll all say no at the same time. So all these guys, like like 10 or 12 of them go, we're not paying you tribute anymore. And Ketalomer's like, oh. Okay. So he takes a year to put together this huge army and he starts marching his way across Syria and down to Israel. And he meets city-state number one. Destroys them all. Comes to city-state number two. And he goes through the first four that way. Boom, 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 boom. And he, he's coming into Israel, and the king of Sodom finally is like, dude, listen, I don't want to fight this guy by myself. So he goes and he finds the last five kings that stood against this guy. And he says, let's all get together, and we'll all fight him at once. Because he's got like four generals. We'll get five. We'll have be five armies against four, and we'll fight this guy, right? And on our home turf. He's in our turf, right? And so the fi- you think i mean, you think the hobbit five armies war. I mean, this is, this is nine armies, okay? And so they get together, and they had this huge battle in the Valley of Jericho. The problem is, the five, five armies lose, and the king of Sodom and all these his buddies are defeated. And Kedalomer doesn't just be like, okay, so here's your check, please pay it. He takes everything. He takes all their food, all their livestock, their women, their children, everything of wealth. Takes it all and is hauling it all back to Iran. And one of the guys in all of that is Lot, because he was living in Sodom. And Abraham finds out about this, and Abraham's like, oh my gosh. And he doesn't just say, oh, I guess he made the wrong alliance. He gets together his, it says, 318 fighting men in his household and his three sheik buddies that are Philistines. And he says, we need to go after my nephew Lot. And so at like 80 years old, he gets on a horse or what, I don't know what, rides a hundred miles after these guys to the land of Dan, which is the far north of Israel. And he doesn't just like get two of his like 15-year-old shepherd kids to like slip in and get Lot and go home. Like he goes to war. He surprise attacks these four armies and wins. At 80. Right? And you're kind of like, classless? Pretty awesome. Right? And, he, and, so he take, and so he brings all this stuff back. And he, and he gets back. And there's three interactions he has when he gets back from this battle. The first is with this sort of strange figure called Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem. Right? Salam Jerusalem. Most Bible scholars think he's the city-state king of Jerusalem. Um, and he comes to Abraham, and he, it, all it says in the Bible is that he's, his name is Melchizedek, he's the king of Salem, and he's the priest of the Most High God. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham, or Abram at this time, and it says that Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So Abram gave this guy Melchizedek a tenth of everything he has. Then he meets—and then, the, then the king of Sodom shows up. He's like, dude, You are awesome. Right? And um, the King of Zion says, listen, give us the women and children back, and you keep everything else. You keep all the wealth for yourself. And uh, Abram said says basically, that is not an acceptable arrangement for me. And and I'm gonna so now we're gonna read this passage. See, that's the background. So look on page twenty and I'm gonna start reading in fourteen twenty one, okay? Okay. Genesis fourteen, verse twenty one. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, the three Philistine sheikhs. Let them have their share, right? Now, remember, in the Bible, all the numbers are put in later. So chapter 15, there's no break in the original, right? This is—the very next sentence says this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, right, so he, he wouldn't let the king of Sodom reward him. He gave his reward to Melchizedek, right? And God says, I'm your reward. And then he says this. Then Abram says back, he says, But Abram said, so- O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And then the word of the Lord came to him this man will not be your heir, but a son. Coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now there's two more things you need to know about the story. In a couple of chapters, in chapter 17, God is going to give Abraham the sign of circumcision point to his promise for generations to come. And then 50 chapters later in the book of Exodus chapter 20, 19 and 20, he's going to make a covenant and an agreement with the people of Israel and give what we, you know, the Ten Commandments? That's in Exodus 20, the law. And it's important to recognize that this happens before both of those things. Okay, that's going to matter in about 10 minutes. But the main dynamic that you have to see here is for all that's happened in in Abram's story, there's one dynamic that is very straightforward— For all the times, Abram has been a hero and a classless sucker. Through all of that, one thing has remained the same. God has made a promise. Abram has chosen to believe it. That's the dynamic. The dynamic is God promises. Abraham believes. God credits righteousness. Faith in God and in his promise is how everyone is made righteous, or in the biblical terms, is saved. Now, the place that this is argued most clearly in the Bible is in Romans 4. But before before I read, I'm going to read an extended section of Romans. Before I do that, I want you to keep your ears open for some things in that passage. The first is, is that righteousness comes by faith in the promise, and it blesses and saves all people. That is... That righteousness doesn't come from us presuming we're good enough or from us acting good enough, but is credited to us by believing God's promise. And that means three things are the necessary and direct implications of that that you can't escape. The first is that we're made righteous by faith. That means self-righteousness that's either from presumption or from performance are both out. The second is, there is no room for self-righteousness or boasting. That is, the argument of Romans 4 is, the only true solution for self-righteousness is gospel. Is having righteousness credited us. The claim of Christianity is, as even though there are lots of Christians who can be very self-righteous, or religious people who can be very self-righteous, the only true human cure for self-righteousness is Jesus. Jesus. Because he is the only one who credits righteousness to people and takes away the entire question of righteousness and therefore self-righteousness is completely moot and irrelevant. That's an interesting claim. And then third, that it's for all, because it's by faith, by simply believing God's promise, it's for all people, not just Jews, but for everybody. And that category in the Bible for that is Gentiles. Gentiles just means everybody who's not a Jew, Right? So let's read this passage together. It's in 1749 in your pew Bible. And I'm going to read Romans, um, Romans 3. I'm going to read the first two verses, and then I'm going to skip to verse 21. So if you're looking at the big number, I'm going to read little numbers 1 and 2, and then I'm going to skip to little number 21. Okay? So the Apostle Paul is arguing This is what Jesus means He says What advantage then is it Of being a Jew Or what value is there In the circumcision Being God's racial people Much in every way First They've been entrusted With the very words of God Meaning They were the ones Who who received And were supposed to Keep charge of the scriptures Which are really important Right Isn't that good enough And then in verse 21 He says But now A righteousness from God Apart from law Has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him, that is Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood, that, it mean, that is us trusting in his death. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it, meaning offered the sacrifice of atonement, that is Jesus. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time and so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, okay, so that's the claim. Now the, now the thing is, what are the implications of that? Where then is boasting? Or where then is self-righteousness? It's excluded. It can't be such a thing. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, because if you observe the law to be righteous, then you could be self-righteous. No, it's excluded on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised, that is, Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, non Jews, through that same faith. Do we then nullify the the law, that is, do we nullify Judaism or being God's racial people by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Oh, wait a second. How is that possible? You just say everybody receives God through the same faith Same justification, same everything through Jesus Christ And yet Jews are somehow special Like, what you're saying is Judaism didn't matter Right? And he says, no, 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 what I'm saying is I'm saying Judaism is right And so if you're a Jewish preacher How could that possibly be? And and so, hence Romans 4 Remember, there's no chapter divisions in the original So Paul's going to explain How he's upholding the law He's upholding the Jewish promises He's upholding all those things by believing we are made right with God by believing in Jesus' death for us, right? He says, What then shall we say that Abraham, the first Jew, our forefather discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Now, see if this verse is memorable. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David said the same thing when is speaking of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He's saying, David, the other supreme Jew, when he wrote a psalm in the Old Testament— believe this exact same thing and here's here's the proof of it he quotes him blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered blessed is the man whose sin the lord will no, never count against him so paul goes on is this blessedness only for the circumcised only for jews or also for the uncircumcised right so is believing in god's promise and receiving it by faith and being saved that way is that only for jews because it came to abraham or is it for everybody Right? He says this, verse ten. Under what circumstances was it credited to Abraham, meaning under where was Abraham? Was it after he was circumcised, i.e. became a Jew, or was it before he became a Jew and was the father of all people? It was not after, it was before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he already had. He had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You see, Abraham was credited righteousness while he was still a Gentile, is what he's saying. While Abraham was both a Jew and a Gentile, he was a Gentile that hadn't really become a Jew yet. While he was still representative of all people. That's when righteousness was credited to him Then as a sign of that He became the first Hebrew or Jew When he received the sign of circumcision Later in chapter 17 You see how he's arguing the historical process? Thank you So then He is the father of all who believe But have not been circumcised In order that righteousness Might be credited to them and he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He's, what he's arguing is, the Jews that come from Abraham are saved the exact same Abraham way Abraham was before he was a Jew. As a Gentile Jew, before he was either, he was saved by faith. And those who became part of the the genetic line of blessing, the Jewish people, are saved the exact same way Abraham was saved. That is, before circumcision, that is, credited by faith. So to be a Jewish believer, then, is to accept the whole faith of Abraham, the circumcision to be the genetic people of God carrying the revelation and being the line of Jesus Christ, which is an enormous blessing. But salvation ultimately goes back to the exact same principle. It is for all of human beings, which is to walk in the faith of the father Abraham, to believe the promise and to have righteousness credited to them. It's the same for every single human being. Right? Verse 13, It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise, right? That happened way later in Exodus 20, that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Because law brings wrath... And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, meaning the genetic Jewish offspring of him, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, meaning as the first believer, right? Now, If you see that and you recognize that the implications are that we're made righteous by faith, that is, self-righteousness then is ruled out or boasting, and that it's for everybody the same way, there's still a couple questions that are going to be doggedly in your face if you're thinking. And that is, okay, Nick, but what about this whole issue of the people? Like, when you read these promises God gives to Abraham, he doesn't just say, hey, believe me. He's, he's making promises about a people That there's going to be this line And he's going to have these descendants And all people are going to be blessed through him what about, what about that? I mean, there's more. aren't there more dynamics than just believing here? And the answer is yes And so you can, you can end up with this question that's Sort of like, which is it? Is it the dynamic, God promises we trust God credits righteousness Or is it the promise of, I'm going to give you these descendants And the answer is, so You know, is it faith Or is it the line of blessing? Which is it? And the answer is yes, absolutely You're right it's both. Yes. Right? And I know that's confusing, so we made a diagram. Okay? And it, here's, here's how it is. You see, here's Abraham. Now, when Abraham believes God and it's credited him as righteousness, he is experiencing or living out the dynamic of salvation. How salvation happens. That is, the dynamic is God makes a promise. We trust in it. God credits righteousness to us. That is, the dynamic of salvation is faith. Right? But there's more to what God is doing than that. How does God so arrange reality such that it is right for Him to credit righteousness to us when we believe? See, there could be a whole lot more to the equation than that. The dynamic of salvation can be very simple, but God may be doing another things to make it legitimate that He does so. That's the argument that that that's the argument in chapter three, where it says it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that God shows that He is both just, that He credits righteousness when He should and that he will give righteousness to all who have faith in Jesus. Right? He does that because through Abraham he creates the line of blessing that's going to bless all nations. But the the line of blessing is supremely realized in the Christ, which means the blessed one. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. I mean, Jesus didn't have a driver's license that said Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ, that is, the anointed one, the Messiah. And as the anointed or blessed (coughs) one— In his death and resurrection, he realizes the promise. Jesus is the ultimate promise. He is the one whom God would bring through the line of Abraham, who would then be a blessing to all nations. In what way has the line of Abraham blessed every people on earth? Right? And it is by, biblically speaking, bringing the promise of redemption. He fulfills the promise. When we believe in that promise, the result is salvation. You see, the dynamic has never changed. You see, there's some people that believe that the Old Testament, well, that's when God was mean and we all had to work hard and be really good to be saved and he was always judging and killing people and God was so mean. And, and then he had this sort of like midlife crisis and then he decided to be really loving and, you know, all his kids hated him and so he thought, well, I'll be different. And then he, he sent Jesus and Jesus was so loving and nice and people, there are people who really think that that's what the Bible basically puts God forward as. Uh, the problem with that is, is that God says at the very beginning of the Bible that he's extraordinarily compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love and kindness. And the dynamic of salvation was set in Genesis 15, actually before that, but it's most explicitly first set in Genesis 15, and has never changed. And according to Scripture, will never change. And so um, it's important to recognize, though, that when we say faith is the dynamic of salvation— The content or object of that faith is relevant. You see, there's a lot of people like you might be sitting there right now and being like, you know, I actually I don't like going to church, but I actually like this pastor because he says what I've always thought that all that matters is faith. I've always thought that. I mean, faith. If you're a Hindu and you have faith, and if you're you know a Presbyterian and you have faith, and if you I'm just kidding, and if you I mean if you if you you know whatever faith if you have faith and whatever you know that's good. Faith is good, and that's what I've always thought. God likes faith. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? If you're, if you're hearing that it's because you're hearing what you want to hear, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is a very particular real God is making a very specific actual promise. And Abraham is saved because he is putting his trust not generally in faith, but in an object that is the God and the God of that promise. And by believing the promise that is given by the God, that God credits righteousness to him and he's saved. Does that make sense? now, there's still two more questions that are going to be banging around in your head if you're if you're thinking this through. One, if if you're sort of believing or you're like, oh, I some, I kind of, I think I sort of believe that. Okay, then the the question that probably will spring to mind is, well, how can but how can I be sure, right? And if you're if you're thinking this through skeptically, you might be thinking, okay, 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 Nick, right? Okay, I see that the apostle Paul, when he wrote Romans, thought that. But is that really what Genesis says? I mean, those, those scriptures belong to Jews. I mean, you can't do this with that. I mean, I, I mean is, it, is that really what Genesis is saying? Or are you Christianizing, you know, Jewish scriptures and trying to make it all work with your New Testament? And the whole reason you can put your Bible together and see Jesus on every page is because you're using the latter part of the Bible to interpret the first part of the Bible in a way the first part of the Bible was never meant to be interpreted, right? That's a good skeptical question, right? Um, and here's the good news. The good news is I don't have to answer both questions because the answer to both is the same answer. Okay, for those of you who are getting tired. And that is, um, the, the good news is, so that Romans passage ends, and it says, it says this, right? It says, Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may, may be by grace, meaning God freely giving it out of his favor rather than us earning it, right? And may be, there's that word, guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. So the whole reason salvation came this way, Paul is arguing, is not only that we could know it, but that we could really know it, right? But here's the thing. After Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, you know what the very next thing out of his mouth was? For say, it's right there, right? O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Right? The land, through the line of people. So he's already believed God. It's already been credited to him as righteousness, right? And yet he's God, but God, how can I know? right how can i be sure and if you're if if you're if you're questioning the the issue of yeah but is this what genesis said here's the question we're just about to find out aren't we we're just about to find out because if we're mis- if if paul was misinterpreting genesis 15:6 then what would come after this would not go along with this interpretation right? It would be something else. So if God's intention was that Abraham really be saved by the law or by works or by performance, then what would come here? It would be advice, right? Or law, instruction, command, right? God, how will I be known? Well, if you do this, if you live up to this and you act this way, and if you do this, or, right, he'd get some kind of advice or law or counsel, right? If Paul is interpreting this right, what we'd get is, well, we don't know what we'd get because there's already the promise, Right? So how do you—how do you give more promise? Well, it's an interesting story, because what happens next is profoundly strange. Right? God says, okay, Abraham, you you want—Abraham, you want—you want to be sure. Okay. Go and get some animals and cut them in half and let them kind of bleed to death in piles and leave some space between them and— And, and then I'll, we'll, we'll have something happen there. So Abram goes and he gets these animals, he cuts them in half, and he makes like this path between these two halves of dead animals. And then he, you know, like the birds come in to eat them and he like beats them all away. And he finally gets dark and he falls asleep. And he has this dream of this sort of pot of burning incense that like is floating in the air and kind of floats between the halves of the animals, right? And then God says, I'm making a covenant with you. I'll fulfill my promise. Right, and you're like. <sighs> now think about that. This is the reason why marriages are preposterous, right? I mean, I mean, th- think about it this way. What is sillier than a wedding? Okay, so two people decide to get married. And so let's say, we'll take the guy because he's supposed to be the proposer, right? And he'll say, I agree with that, by the way. And the guy goes, "Will you marry me because yeah, I want to be your husband and I'll stay with you the rest of our lives. As long as we're both alive, I will stay with you, right? And she goes, oh, I'm so glad. And she you know, yes. And as long as you give me a precious stone. And so they, they decide to, to get married, right? And so then they have a wedding, right? And so they spend between five and $150,000 on, to make a promise that they've already made. Right, He's already said, will you marry me? I'll stay with you forever. Right? And she said, yes. They've pr- they're engaged, right? They've pr- that's cheap. Well, I mean, you know, the ring's kind of expensive, but comparatively, that's cheap. Right? And they've already promised it. I mean, why would you have a wedding when you've already, right? That's, it's, okay. Well, there is a reason, right? Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, I've got three daughters. That's how I feel. Okay. <laughs> But, but here's the reason. That's all you can do with a promise is solemnize it. That's all you can do. A promise is a promise. You can't add to it. Either you're going to fulfill it or you're not. Either they meant it or they didn't. Either they— So all you can do with a promise is say, did you really, really mean that? Yeah, I really, really meant it. Well, can we do it publicly and with lots of fragrances? Sure, baby. Okay, awesome. That'll be good. And so that— so that it, all, all you can do is solemnize it. It's just a ceremony. You just say, the promise is really, really real. And that's what God does with Abraham. He doesn't say, oh, well, let me add to the promise. He doesn't add to the promise. All he does is solemnize the promise and calls it a covenant. And that's what a covenant is. It's a really, really, really serious pro- promise that you're never, ever, ever going to back down from. To which after this, as Genesis rolls on and the rest of Scripture rolls on, God begins to refer to the covenant as a bere- Alom, or an everlasting covenant That is, no matter how much The line of Abraham fails I will never fail Right? It's the bloke who says It doesn't matter how many affairs my wife has I promised I'd stay with her As long as we both shall live And I'm going to That's the kind of That's what covenant means to God Apparently in scripture as we read through it And we'll come back to this covenant again and again and again And you see, once you realize that, you realize, no, this is exactly the right interpretation of Genesis. This is what Genesis has always meant. This has always been the dynamic of faith. The promise and faith has always been the way this works because when Abraham said, how can I know this is the way this works? God's like, well, let's just make it more formal then. And that's how you get this passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 13 and 19. This is what it says. When God made his promise to Abraham... Since there was no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. I mean, can you think about God's trying to formalize the covenant? Like in marriages, we go before God and, his, and these witnesses, like we solemnize it by the fact that God is here, right? How does God do his wedding? It's like, so I'm here. Um, I'm definitely going to do this. Right? He, because he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely, right? I mean, what do you do? I will definitely, really, really, surely, definitely, really, surely, definitely, really do this. Say, okay, uh, verse 15. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath, see, listen this, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument, meaning puts an end to whether or not the promise was ever really made. That's why you make oaths. Right? That's why we have legal documents. The question isn't the promise, the question is was the promise ever really made? And so this says God made the covenant, not because he was wishy-washy on his promise, but because he wanted you and I to know forever, for always, completely established, with absolute certainty, as well as possible, that he really, 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 this promise. And in doing so, he tried to make it clear that he was serious about the promise. But he does nothing more. There's no addition. There's no advice. There's no—it's just a promise because that's all there ever was. A trustworthy promiser who made a promise that if we trusted it, he would credit to us or give us everything we required. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You see, it's all that assurance language so that you can know, so that you can be sure. How do we do that? God did it by making a covenant, by swearing, by taking an oath, by But you see how that's nothing more. It's no additional thing. It's really just the same dynamic. Promise, faith, righteousness credited. And the name of that, the result of that line of blessing, the one through whom the promise came, the whole rest of the Bible points to and points to again and again and again until he would actually bear the name, the anointed one, the one whose name means he saves that is, Jesus. And that Jesus would then be the one who was the full and completed object of the promise. So what Abraham believed in but didn't know the full object, in the coming of Jesus, all people then after could know. And that's why, when it comes to the Christian faith... And the reason why we refer to the Christian faith as a Christian faith rather than the Christian religion is not because religion is a bad word. It isn't a very helpful word culturally, but the reason we call it a Christian faith is because Christianity isn't a religion, at least in this sense. Christianity is just believing news. That's all it is. There is no do. There's just this happened. And we believe it, and everything we need is credited to us, and you're done. And then all you do is live out that identity. And it turns out we're chronically forgetful of that identity and so on. And so God has created these things like the church and the scriptures and stuff to help us. But being made right with God is not the purveyance or the doing of some religion. It is simply that there is news that is told to us that we believe. That's why why Christianity can never not be evangelistic. We can never stop sharing our faith. That's all Christianity is, (laughs) is sharing the idea And in fact, that God has made a promise that if we will believe, he will credit righteousness to us and we will belong to him and we will be set right with him and everything else and we'll spend the rest of our life telling other people that news and living it out in relationship to all things. That is the dynamic of all of salvation in all of the Bible from um, 3,500 years ago to the present and through all the Bible and all of Revelation from beginning to end completely straight and directed, never wavering, so that we could be sure and so that we could see the hand of God all the way through the scriptures and the dynamic of salvation and we could see the promise of God working out from one end of the Bible to the other so that we could be, all of us, children of Abraham. And that would put to death forever self-righteousness. It would put to death forever us trying to assume we're good enough or to be good enough to where we could just be and be gods. And if we would do that, we would be radically different. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that the message of the Scriptures is clear. Thank you that we can be assured of these things. Thank you that... um, Thank you that we live in a moment where we know so much more about the promise and our faith can be so much more directed. And I know, Father, that there's, there are people here who, um, even though they wouldn't describe themselves this way, are still deeply committed to self-righteousness. Religious, irreligious people, deeply committed. To, and for this, this whole message is the stink of death. It's the taste of boredom. It just makes them frustrated. And I pray, Father, that right now that they would receive from you a sufficient amount of self-condemnation and a, a real sense of hopelessness and judgment that is fitting us when we commit ourselves to self-righteousness because like it was says in Romans 4, the law brings death. And it says in 2 Corinthians, you've said that this is, it's the stench of death. This message is the stench of death to those committed to self-righteousness. And then there are those of us who who th- we, we believe this and but yet we still act self-righteous and, um, and we're unsure and we're timid and all these things and we pray that that which you meant to make sure in us that you would make sure sh- make clear that we would see the certainty of the promise we would see there's nothing more that you can do than make an oath and swear by yourself and then demonstrate it in the death and resurrection of your own son what more could you do than that father please encourage us and there's a third category we know too of people that they just don't know if this is true it's a good enough message, it's clear enough from Scripture, but they don't know if it's true or not. And they realize if it's true, they'd have to believe it. And they would love to believe it if it was really real. And yet, it's hard to believe. And so I pray for those people, Father, that you would you'd work in them. I pray that they'd be led to all truth. I pray that if it's true, they'd see it as true. They'd believe it as true, that they'd receive Jesus. They'd ask him into their hearts and lives and minds and souls. They'd receive a new identity in Christ and that they'd follow you. But I, pr- I pray, Father, that they would, they would only ever do it as committed to the truth because we can't come to the truth as liars. And we know that in their own conscience there has to be clarity. So we pray that you'd reveal truth to them. And I pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on all of us to bring us to the areas we need to get to. So pray in Jesus' name, amen.